This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Sanj Kakar, an orthopedic surgeon with a specialist interest in hand and wrist disorders at Mayo Clinic Rochester's campus. In these darker days of winter, many of us are piling on the layers to stay warm. Perhaps you're planning a winter getaway or counting down the days to summer, but soon conversation will be turning to safe practices to protect us from the sun. Did you know that skin cancer is the number one cancer in the United States with an estimated 3.5 million cases a year? In fact, your lifetime incidence is one in five or 20%. You may have thought people of darker skin complexion are immune against skin cancer. That is simply not the case. Joining us today is Dr. Dawn Davis, who is a professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Welcome to the show, Dawn. Thank you, Sanj. It's great to be here. So Dawn, we're talking about skin cancer. And as I mentioned, this is obviously not something top of mind at the moment with everyone sort of staying huddled inside and not really exposing themselves. I thought with skin cancer, we had cracked this nut and it really wasn't a problem in 2022. Is that not the case? That's indeed not the case. And while it is winter and people think about sunlight differently and hope for sunnier days, we have not cracked the nut on skin cancer. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. First of all, we need to educate the public that ultraviolet light is present all the time. So even in the winter, we are getting exposed to ultraviolet light. We also take vacations during the winter to sunny climates where ultraviolet light is more intense. And then additionally, some commercial lighting does have ultraviolet light that radiates from it. So we may be exposed in our work environment and not even realize it. Plus when we're by windows in our home, or for example, driving in the car, one of the types of ultraviolet light that has a longer wavelength, UVA, is a long enough wavelength to penetrate through window glass. And so we end up getting exposed to ultraviolet light even when we are indoors. And then last but not least, I'd like to remind us that we have colleagues and friends in the community who are using tanning salons with ultraviolet light tanning beds to get tan and to have light exposure during the darker winter months. And also, of course, during sunnier months. So some of us are getting ultraviolet light exposure in alternative ways year round. So Dawn, let's talk about that pre-tanning. I didn't realize that was a thing, but I guess it really is. So can you talk to us about why that is bad for you? Some people say it actually looks healthy. It gives you a glow. Yes. A lot of people have heard about the concept of obtaining a pre-tan prior to getting sun exposure because they feel like if they give themselves a little bit of light to the point where they would tan, or perhaps if you're a light Caucasian turns slightly pink instead of burning and turning red, that it's safer for their skin overall. And so there's a layman's myth circulating that it's really helpful before a sunny vacation or before the start of summer to purposely expose yourself to ultraviolet light, either naturally or through a tanning bed source So that way your skin is, quote, safer and not as likely to burn. However, we need to start shifting our mindset and remembering that ultraviolet light is like deposits in a bank. And I tell my patients that it's the only bank deposit for which you want to be a zero balance. It's the only bank you don't want to deposit in because all ultraviolet light is like a, a deposit in the bank of exposure and you cannot take it back and withdraw it and any ultraviolet light exposure causes damage. So when you get a tan, 
It is a natural reaction of the melanocytes of the skin to turn on and upregulate to help protect your skin, but that's technically a sign of damage. Your melanocytes should secrete the amount of pigment at rest that is natural to your skin tone, which is considered the baseline. And any form of tan is technically a reaction to damage and inflammation. I like that analogy about the bank. I didn't think about that. So there's something else that you said that struck me. You said that we're always exposed to ultraviolet light. So for example, in the winter, we're exposed to it. I don't really think about putting sunscreen on in the winter. I mean, do you recommend that? Especially, for example, let's say you're skiing and you're outdoors. Should you be covering up then as well with sunscreen? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I currently wear an SPF 30 daily in my makeup moisturizer and on my sun exposed parts. Now during the winter, that doesn't include much because I have on long clothing, but I have an SPF of 30 on my face and neck at all times. And then when summer or spring comes and I'm wearing short sleeves and things, I wear an SPF 30 for daily wear on my body. When I go outdoors, I wear an SPF of 50 or I will wear UPF clothing, which has a UPF factor that's equivalent to SPF and sunscreen. When we go about our casual business during the day, we do recommend that at all times, people should wear an SPF of 15 to 30 for casual wear. And when they go outdoors, they should wear an SPF minimum of 30, but preferably a 50. And for our winter fun activities, it's important to remember a concept regarding physics which is that when light hits a surface, it will reflect off that surface to a particular degree. So you will probably find examples of friends who have gone skiing perhaps or snowshoeing, or perhaps they've gone swimming in a pool or sat in a hot tub in a cold location and they will develop a sunburn. And that is because not only are they getting direct ultraviolet light from the sun that's shining down upon them, but they also get the reflected light of light bouncing off of snow and water it also bounces off of concrete and pavement. And light intensifies actually when it, it bounces off of snow and light. So you, you get more sunlight than you would expect. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I don't think many people think about putting sunscreen on in the winter. You know, there's, it's interesting one thing you said about the summer, and this is one thing that makes me sort of smile in an ironic sense in that we're very protective of our children. At the pool, they wear the long UP, uh, UV uh, protected clothing but yet their parents are completely exposed. Correct. <laughs> I always found that an interesting sort of irony. Have you sort of seen that as well? I mean, why are we protecting our children, not ourselves? Well, I'm very grateful to our parents and adults and grandparents who are doing so well and are conscientious about protecting children. That's really important. And that helps decrease their amount of UV light in the bank, if you will, because it's been well-documented in the dermatology literature that the vast majority of our ultraviolet light exposure is obtained by the onset of adulthood around age 18 to 21. So we get most of our ultraviolet light actually in childhood. So it's really helpful that the lay public envisions pediatric skin to be gentle and that they wanna take care of it and help their children. So that's a really great thing. But I also like to remind families that kids appreciate when parents and grandparents and loved ones are around to care for them and we want them to take care of their own health as well. And so it's very helpful if people don't like wearing sunscreen that they could use hats, sunglasses and photoprotective clothing, the UPF clothes that we spoke of earlier. And I'd be happy to describe them further if you think that would be helpful. Oh yeah, absolutely, please. So UPF stands for ultraviolet protection factor, and it is an equivalent ratio or grading system to SPF, which is the sun protection factor that we use as a rating for sunscreen. 
And so both UPF and SPF are a number that comes from a ratio. And essentially what it means is the amount of time wearing that particular item that it would take your skin to turn red from a particular amount of light exposure relative to having the product not present on your skin exposed. So for example, if I go out during a particular time of day and I'm not wearing any protection on my arm and my arm starts to show signs of color absorption like redness or tanning within 30 minutes without the product. And then when I put the product on, it takes 90 minutes, which is three times as long for them to show change. Then the ratio is 90 to 30 or three to one for an SPF of three. And some patients who are skin of color have an SPF that ranges from three to approximately 13. So even our friends who have darker skin types do not have an adequate amount of photoprotection. For example, the average t-shirt that is just lightly woven will have an SPF of approximately three. So you cannot substitute regular clothes for the UPF clothes because they have impregnated weaves within the fibers that help absorb and reflect the light that give you that extra protection. So if I'm wearing a particular shirt and it takes 50 minutes for me to tan through the shirt versus if I weren't wearing the shirt, that UPF shirt will get a rating of 50 to one or an SPF of 50, which is what we recommend for outdoors. And a similar concept happens with lotion. If I apply a sunscreen and it takes one minute to turn red because I'm at the equator and I turn red really fast at the middle of the day, but then I put that same sunscreen on and it takes 50 minutes to show inflammation, my SPF is 50, 50 to one. Thank you, Ron. That's why you're a professor of dermatology. That's very complicated. Uh, but my take on that is that we should be covering up even people of darker skin. I mean, and obviously you and I, are very different in terms of our skin color. And I never really thought about that for the darker skin color, but that's good to know. Dawn, let's switch gears. Let's talk about skin cancer and skin lesions and lesions that, for example, our primary care colleagues should be worried about when they see patients. Can you sort of talk to us about the, the sort of signs and symptoms that patient may exhibit that should alert one to sort of see a lesion as being suspicious? Yes, absolutely. So there are three main common types of skin cancer. There are other atypical types, which we won't get into today, and they have classic signs and symptoms. So I'll run through those for you. And then I think we should pause a moment to educate our colleagues on some of the less common symptoms of skin cancer that can still happen and re would require evaluation uh, concerning for skin cancer. So the most common malignancy of the skin is basal cell carcinoma. These tend to present as small, slow-growing, pearly papules that have overlying prominent blood vessels that we would call telangiectasias. So sometimes they're shiny, they're round, they look like a little cyst and often get confused for a cyst. Squamous cell carcinomas are the second most common form of skin cancer, and they tend to look like a raised red macule or patch with overlying scale. Sometimes it gets confused for an area of eczema or perhaps psoriasis. And then last but not least is melanoma, which is the most hazardous form of skin cancer. And it comes with the melanoma alphabet, A, B, C, D, and E. A stands for asymmetry. So something that looks different top to bottom and or left to right. Borders should be well circumscribed. For melanoma, they tend to be irregular. C stands for color. The lesion on the skin should match the other colors of other lesions on the skin. They shouldn't be an atypical color like blues, greens, whites, or reds, and they shouldn't change color. 
we often look for the ugly duckling sign. So all of my moles tend to look like this. And for some reason, this mole looks like that. D stands for diameter. We like for moles to be, or skin spots that are healthy to be less than the size of a pencil eraser or six millimeters. And there are exceptions to that, but melanoma tends to be large. And then E stands for evolution or elevation, meaning that there's change and then it can grow into a nodule. I also like to remind people of atypical signs and symptoms of skin cancer. If you have a spot on your skin that looks like a wound, it's eroded or ulcerated and it just won't heal, and you don't remember an area of trauma or an episode of trauma to that area of skin, I would recommend having that evaluated if it lasts for longer than three to four weeks. Also, we talk about crust. So the C stands for color technically, but I like to talk about crust. So things that tend to grow a lot of scale or tend to be exuberantly crusty versus the other parts of skin aren't being scaly and crusty, you have to wonder what's underneath at the base of that lesion to cause it to turn over so much. Is there some sort of inflammation or atypia there? And then last but not least, always remember that it, while we teach people to look at their moles and to look for change, that most of the time that you develop a melanoma, it does not arise within a mole you already own. It certainly can, but more times than not, it arises de novo or where the skin used to be normal. And so if you develop a new skin lesion and it meets some of these criteria we spoke about, it's very helpful to go to a skin specialist to have it examined. So Dawn, obviously you talked about the three most common types. Is there a particular age group that they're more common in? Uh, we tend to think of people maybe a little bit older, but it, does it happen in the younger population as well? Melanoma is common across the lifespan. Like all other malignancies in general, you tend to have an increased risk of malignancy over time and age because our bodies are getting older and wiser and sometimes more forgetful and clunky. <laughs> so yes, older adults tend to have more melanoma than younger adults and children. However, I will tell you, there is consistently a low percentage that is real of melanoma in children, we approximate it to be around four to 5% of all melanomas are pediatric. They can present in different ways than adult melanoma. And the other thing is based on the ozone depletion and lifestyle changes and et cetera, we are seeing more melanoma in younger adults than we used to. And do they behave differently in the younger patient than the older patient? Yes, so pediatric melanoma has different skin signs than adult melanoma. So children can have the same melanoma alphabet issues, the A, B, C's, D's, and E's we just spoke of, but pediatric melanoma tends to present differently. It tends to be a symmetric or well-circumscribed amelanotic or unpigmented nodule. So it can be the color of your skin or it can be a shade of pink or red. And we need to be mindful that when you have skin of color, based on the baseline color of the skin, the red or pink can look a different shade. And they tend to arise and grow very quickly. They're often mistaken for other benign growths on the skin, including warts, molluscopox, pox, scar tissue, and et cetera. And so for children, because people don't think of melanoma top of mind, they tend to get detected later than our adult patients because people don't understand or know that children can have melanoma. I see. So let's say, for example, you think it's a wart and you're doing a topical salicylic acid treatment 
and it doesn't go away. Should that be raising a red flag in your mind as a primary care physician when seeing these patients? Absolutely. So I don't want to scare our colleagues and have them think that every bump on a child that, that doesn't respond to treatment is a melanoma, because by far and away, other skin lesions in children are much more common than melanoma. However, it is a general rule of thumb, and particularly with skin cancer, what I advise my patients and I advise my non-dermatology colleagues is, if you feel you have the correct skin diagnosis and you've consulted resources and you're doing gold standard therapy and the patient is compliant and so are you, and the lesion is not changing or responding, then you need to keep top of mind that it could be an atypical presentation of a common problem or it could be a less common presentation of a serious diagnosis, including melanoma. So it is not uncommon in my practice as a subspecialist to see pediatric melanoma that was thought to be a scar or thought to be an infection or thought to be another benign cutaneous marker like a cyst. So Dawn, one thing that I wanted to ask you, because I also see it in hand clinic and sometimes can be confusing, is pigmented lesions in the nail bed. And Sometimes they're normal, but sometimes because we know about melanoma, we worry. Can you just tell us some of the pearls there between a lesion to worry about and not when it comes to nail bed lesions? Yes. Well, first of all, Dr. Kekar, let me just thank you and your hand and orthopedic and plastics colleagues for being judicious and mindful of lesions on the hands and also on the feet and including the nails because skin cancers of, of all types and melanoma can happen on acral sites as we would call them, such as the hands and feet, the palms and soles and underneath the nail plate. Melanonychia is the term that we use in dermatology to indicate that there's a streak of pigment under the nail. Melanonychia can occur in children and in adults and it is very common in certain races and ethnicities. So what we do is we recommend keeping track of the pigmentation. If it's present on more than one nail, that is more reassuring. If it's more common in a certain ethnicity of that patient, that's also more reassuring. Children's melanonychia tends to be benign. There are rare exceptions to that rule. Adult melanonychia can also be benign, but it is more common to have melanoma arise within melanonychia in an adult than in a child. And so if you see a pigmented stripe, first of all, it may not be melanin. It could be hemorrhage or bleeding trapped under the nail or an infection or other things. But usually pigment under the nail is melanonychia. And we like to track the width and the length of the stripe of pigment, watch it grow out over time, see if it progresses to affect the digit underneath, such as the pulp at the tip of the digit or perhaps the cuticle. So is it growing outward or perhaps backward proximally towards the patient? Are there any associated nodules or erosion or other color change? Does the patient have pain or symptoms? If they do, all of these would be concerning to investigate for skin cancer, particularly melanoma. So when you say melanichia and it grows out, does that mean you're, you're talking about over time it disappears? And for example, a melanoma would get bigger or thicker or wider? Correct. So natural melanonychia can resolve spontaneously. Typically it will stay and it will stay constant. It's sort of like having a mole in your nail matrix cells that make your nail plate and they happen to have some pigmented nidus in there that makes it striped. So it should stay stagnant and consistent like all of our other moles and freckles. 
So if the stripe changes and it is persistent, that would be concerning. Okay. So Dawn, we see these lesions and I'm worried. You know, I'm seeing somebody in my office. What should I be doing there? Are there tests I should be doing? Who should I be calling? What should I be doing? For our primary care colleagues, what I would do is take a photograph. I would measure the pigment. I would document if there are signs and symptoms related in the area such as pain, erosion, a palpated nodule. If you palpate a nodule, you may wanna get appropriate imaging to see if there's some extension into the nail plate. And then I would consult a dermatologist for further guidance. So Dawn, we, we've talked about how people of color are at risk of skin cancer. What types of skin cancer are they at risk of? How does it differ from, for example, Caucasian patients? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sand. We definitely wanna be mindful and respectful of our skin of color patients. I think it's important to remind all of us and our patients that patients who have skin of color can get skin cancer. It is less common than in the Caucasian population. However, because there is some question or query as to whether they can have skin cancer, it presents in a different way sometimes than Caucasian skin cancer tends to present. And then also there's detection issues because if patients are unaware and it's not top of mind, they may not seek care for their skin until the, the cancer is advanced. So skin of color patients are more likely to have skin cancers, particularly melanoma in acral sites. So for example, the hands and the feet. And a lot of times we don't look at the bottoms of our feet very often. And sometimes we just take whatever lesions are on our hands for granted or think that it's due to mechanical wear and tear and aging. Also, patients who are skin of color can have signs of aging on their skin, and sometimes that can be confused with skin cancer. So not all new pigmented growths on a patient who is skin of color are skin cancer, and it would be helpful to come to the office and talk with a skin expert so that we can reassure them as to which uh, signs are simply of aging and time and which ones are concerning for malignancy. It's very important to emphasize that our skin of color patients have appropriate and expeditious access to dermatology and to skin cancer experts so that they can have a complete cutaneous exam and we can speak to them about factors that are just as important, such as sunscreen and photoprotective measures and intermittent self-skin exams because skin cancer and photoaging are relevant for our skin of color patients. Such an important message, Dr. Davis, and I'm, I'm so grateful for your expertise. We've been talking about skin cancer and ways to keep safe with Dr. Dawn Davis. Thank you for your time, Dawn. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and thank you for the privilege of your time.